Matthew chapter 5, 1 to 16. Today our focus will be upon 5, 4. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Father, this morning we thank you for this introduction to one of the most, if not the very most important sermon ever preached on planet Earth, and the most important person to ever preach, our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us then as we continue to work with this glorious introduction and particularly today as we confront the truth concerning the blessedness of those that mourn, for they, says the text, shall be comforted. May we today be energized of thy spirit to both say and to understand the blessed truth of thy comforts. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, Amen. As we've often said, grief is the emotion of loss. And mourning is the expression of grief. When Adam sinned, he immediately knew that something significantly had been lost in his life. Adam felt the sting of great and deep grief within him. 
But Adam did not immediately mourn over that act of disobedience and rebellion on his part. Rather, Adam did what we commonly see people do. Adam, one, sought to cover himself. The worldly pursuit of personal facade was therein born. And since Adam, the things that people will do to cover themselves is quite astounding to see. Secondly, Adam hid from God. He ran away from the Creator rather than to the Creator as he did before sin. And then thirdly, Adam contrived an excuse and kick-started the refined art of blame casting. And of course, every wife knows that Adam blamed Eve. Nonetheless, what Adam did is not mourning over his sin. You can easily see the patterns of Adam's illegitimate responses to personal sin in society all around us. It is indeed the sinner's way. It is the sinner's way to cover. It is the sinner's way to hide. It is the sinner's way to blame. You can easily see Adam's illegitimate responses to personal sin in this local church. All the crazy things even professing Christians do to cover, to keep their public facade in place, to run away from God rather than towards God, and of course, to blame others. Why, many of us have been the blamed (laughs) as well as those that blame. First century Israel had a masterful leadership in the human art of duck and cover. They were experts in hiding behind their long, colorful robes of prestige and verbal gymnastics in platitude. Many were highly religious, but not at all right with God. Enter the Messiah, who according to specific scripture prophecy, would preach good tidings to the poor. The gospel is only for poor people. Didn't know that. Should I empty my bank account? No. It's not that kind of poverty, as we preached last week. It's about a poverty of spirit before God. Scripture prophecy is that the good news, the gospel, is preached to the poor as in poor in spirit, as was introduced in chapter 5 and verse 3, where King Jesus declares, blessed are the poor in spirit. And now building upon that proclamation of the Lord, we find 5-4, blessed are they that mourn. In other words, the truth of 5-4 is practically useless, apart from the posture of, of the human soul as indicated in 5.3. You have to start with 5.3. You have to start with 5.3. You have to start with 5.3. You can't start with 5.4. You have to start with 5.3. 
and then building upon a poverty of spirit, then comes this blessedness that is attached to godly sorrow. Spiritual poverty, 5.3, leads to godly sorrow, 5.4, over personal sin expressed before the one who is most offended. God. When David committed his great sin, looking at it again, I would say he sinned against that woman, Bathsheba. Looking at it from my eyes, I'd say he surely sinned against her husband. He had the man killed. I would say he sinned against the nation. He was the leader of the nation, and he did an immoral and a a murderous thing. And yet when David finally came to his senses after being confronted by the prophet Nathan, he would say, against thee and against thee only, I have sinned. He wasn't denying that he had sinned against Uriah. He wasn't denying that he had sinned against Bathsheba. But he understood the truth that all sin, each and every single sin committed by human beings is ultimately against God, the Creator. This is the blessed morning of which... King Jesus spoke. Now, topically, and I think that that's probably the single greatest error of preaching the Beatitudes, is that we take them as chapter titles of a topical book. Topically, we can speak of grief and mourning in a number of legitimate and illegitimate ways. Actual losses in personal, family, and national life stir us deeply within. Loss and grief is common among us all. And it is also common in response, regardless of actual loss, for people to hide their problems and pretend to be happy or to lash out in anger while playing the victim to the tune of a violin. The sons of Adam easily respond to losses of every kind in a damnic fashion. It's legit for Fred to sorrow and mourn over Jan. It's legit for others to mourn and sorrow over the loss of a loved one. And there is a right and godly way to go about that. But that is not, and I say that is not what Jesus is talking about here. It's the Boy Scout view of the Scripture. It's the Girl Scout view of the Scripture that takes blessed are those that mourn and associates it with the idea of someone that has lost a significant loved one, Phil, or lost the love of his life, or a child, or a grandson. 
or whatever the case may be. There are legitimate areas over which we as humans mourn, but that is not what this verse of Scripture is directly about. The Lord Jesus on this occasion, Messiah speaking to Israel, the king over that promised kingdom, spoke not directly to the loss of a mate or a child or a parent or a friend beloved. Messiah spoke not of mourning as a blessing in and of itself. What he spoke of was the good tidings of comfort to the rightly poor. Let me say it again. What Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 3, 4 is he speaking about the gospel, the good tidings of comfort to the rightly poor that mourn over their sin before Christ, holy God. Now let's plug that, uh, this second beatitude into our weekly outline, same outline we preached last week, we're preaching this week, that outline we're preaching the next week, and the next week, and the next week, through all eight of the beatitudes. Let's plug this second beatitude into our weekly outline for understanding and application. Number one, the disposition of the heavenly king. I'm submitting to you that mourning can be seen on the life of Jesus Christ. It is the disposition of the heavenly king. The familiar depiction of Messiah, Isaiah 53, designates him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The four Gospels record Messiah himself mourning over the evidence of sinful unbelief and rejection of God among those he came to save. You see Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus mourning over unbelief. He's not mourning because Lazarus died. He has the power to bring him back and will. He's mourning over the unbelief in the human heart. We see mourning Jesus as he rides a donkey into the city of Jerusalem and cries out saying, Oh, Jerusalem! Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen doth her chicks, but ye would not. We see Christ mourning with great agony of soul in Gethsemane when he is about to become the sin bearer, having no sin of his own, the anticipation of becoming the sin-bearer was for our blessed Lord excruciating. It was the cross before the cross. Now this connects and aligns profoundly with the early revealed fact that God is the creator of all things and that God the creator is said to have been Grieved, quote, grieved at his heart. 
when he viewed the great wickedness of man in the days of Noah. Righteousness is what God is. And righteous God hates all sin. And the scripture tells us that he is grieved over sinful humanity. And the anointed one, the Messiah, God the Son become man on earth, reflects the heart of the Almighty toward sin. It must be judged. It cannot be allowed to forever remain. Sin is indeed lamentable. And so, the grief of God over human sin that resulted in the destruction of the worldwide flood is the same grief of God that was dealt with at the cross And it's the same grief of God that will be dealt with in relationship to the coming great tribulation before the return of our Lord. The grief of God over mankind's sin will result in destruction by fire in the coming day. God is righteous. God's righteousness has been violated by his own creatures. Yet God spared poor Adam, by use of a temporary sacrificial covering and the promise of a permanent solution to come. And God spared poor Noah on the ark. God in wisdom, beyond our understanding, made no allowance for the salvation of sinful angels. Yet God planned a way, and only one way, for poor people truly poor in spirit people to receive from his loving heart redemption from sin, their sin. The heavenly king's disposition reflects both the necessary judgment of God upon sin and the singular gift of redemption. Number two. We see, then, the demand for mourning over personal sin placed before kingdom citizens, placed before the people having kingdom opportunity as promised, because the actual citizens of this promised kingdom mourn over their sin as God does grieve over their own sin. We might ask the question, how might we expect a first century Jewish person under the preaching ministry of John the Baptizer or the Lord Jesus to express their personal mourning over sin? And you know the answer. You may not have thought of the answer, but you know the answer. The answer is that they would enter into the testimony or waters of public baptism, confessing their personal sinfulness, saying, as it were, publicly, I know myself to be a sinner, 
And I am looking to God in this moment as he has promised us. John's baptism. And of course, then you can better understand the terse words of John towards those religious leaders that came to him for baptism when bearing no evidence of poverty of spirit. He demanded of them fruits worthy of repentance before he would indeed baptize them because John could not care less about participating in an Adamic facade. God is never interested in the external show of it. God is interested in the heart of it each and every time. In the broader application, we can say that personal relationship with God is, of course, lost because of sin. Sin separates every individual person from God. The person that mourns over this sinful loss personally uh, is distinguished by what the Bible calls godly sorrow. In fact, it's the Bible that draws a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. There is a difference, and the Bible specifies the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Let me show it to you. Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, uh, demonstrate clearly in the writing of the Apostle Paul the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow ends in a certain way. Worldly sorrow ends in a certain way. They both are called sorrow, but there's a big difference. There's a big difference. There's a huge difference. And the Bible not only recognizes the difference, it promotes the difference. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says, Now I rejoice, he's speaking about the responses to the Corinthians, to his letters and his preaching and teaching ministry. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry. Paul says, I don't feel bad just because you feel bad. I mean, I don't feel good just because you feel bad. Uh, Paul's going to go on to say he doesn't feel bad because they feel bad either. But he's not going to say that he uh, feels good uh, just because he made people feel bad. His goal was not to make people feel bad. His, his goal was not to make people sad. That's not the goal. He said, I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Uh, the kind or the brand of sorrow, said Paul, that he saw operating in the Corinthian church back in the day when he confronted their sin, uh, he said, I see in you a godly sorrow. What makes it godly? Well, it leads to repentance, which leads to something else. We'll get to that in here in just a minute. But uh, they were made sorry. And we could ask the question, who made them sorry? And the answer is, God the Holy Spirit made them sorry. God, the Holy Spirit, opened their eyes to the real problem at hand. God, the Holy Spirit, pulled the heartstrings to the real problem at hand. God, the Holy Spirit, made them sorry after a godly sort. And Paul says that ye may, uh, might receive damage by us in nothing. Paul said, the way that the Holy Spirit led you allowed me to say, I've done you no harm. I've only helped you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 10, watch this carefully. For godly sorrow, here's what it does, works. Godly sorrow worketh. What? Repentance. What do you repent of? Sin. Godly sorrow always deals with sin, the sin factor. 
Godly sorrow worketh repentance. And it works repentance unto comfort. Oh, I'm sorry. It says salvation. But we could have said comfort. Because there is no greater comfort to my soul or to your soul than the comfort that we know we are saved from our sins because of faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the pattern. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation not to be repented of. You never want to let go of that one. That's a sadness you never want to lose. That's a sorrow you never want to lose. Sorrow over sin that leads to repentance and brings, as it were, a sense of deliverance. But watch, but watch. But the sorrow of the world worketh. The mourning of the world works, but it all ends in death. Godly sorrow always ends in life and comfort. Worldly sorrow always ends in more sin and death. Wow. That's a phenomenal revelation. Mourning personal sin is not in of itself a blessed thing, but it is the path that leads to God's comfort or God's salvation. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Lord's disposition, the citizen's demand, brings us to number three, and rather quickly, although we're by no means done. The grand disclosure here, of course, has to do with the promise of God's own comfort. The phrase, they shall be comforted, does not, upon study, point only to a far-off eternal reality, but the more immediate response of God to the person poor in spirit that acknowledges openly their sinfulness before God, and I'd like to add whether a believer or a non-believer. When a non-believer does that, he's saved. When a believer does that, he's saved the more. The principle applies both to salvation, as we usually speak of it, and sanctification. Adam found something of God's comfort in the skins provided to cover his nakedness. Noah found something of God's comfort in the refined promises revealed and leading up to Christ, but ultimately in the reality of the ark. Abraham and David found something of God's comfort in the refined promises that certainly pointed them with more specificity to Messiah the Christ. And the promise of the king and the offer of the kingdom was for God's own appointed comfort to come to the nation of Israel if they would rightly mourn their sin. But again, for our application, we must say that God is not only the God of ultimate comfort, but he is the God of every present comfort along the way unto the great day of promise. 
happiness comes to certain sad people because their godly sorrow leads them to God's own comfort. Oh, to be comforted of God. Oh, to be comforted of God the first time, and then again, and then again, and then again. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, both near and far. Godly sorrow is ever the first step towards God's forgiveness. This is why the Old Testament wise man, King Solomon, said, it's far better for God's people to enter into the house of mourning the house of sorrow, than the house of feasting. Why? Because a feasting spirit will lead you to M-E-R-R-Y, but the house of mourning will lead you to M-A-R-Y. And I believe that one of the reasons that the world is so big on Merry Christmas because they know so little about Merry Christmas. Better to enter into the house of mourning, said Solomon. He went on to say, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. Now, that basic concept of our Lord understood I am compelled to say three additional things by way of application. And then after that, I want to turn to the prophecy. So we'll be pressed to finish in the hour, but I promise you we'll be quick about it. First application. This demand, this biblical demand, this demand of King Jesus for appropriate sadness runs contrary to the modern expectation among Christians for local church frivolity, local church convenience, and local church lightheartedness. The spirit of our age calls for clean Christian comedy and a variety of entertainments whenever the local church gathers. But as the Lord's half-brother James rightly says to the saints, quote, be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Our posture at worship and instruction ought to reflect the manifesto of Messiah. God is not anti-humor. I read this statement this last week. God is not anti-humor, but the shallow treatment of sin in the Lord's church today is anti-God. Number two. This demand for righteous sadness exposes the remaining facade of human-sown fig leaves 
and man-made religion. So many people do go to church somewhere, to church, and check all the boxes of social expectation, and yet will no more know firsthand the comfort of God than did the Jewish nation in the first century. Like Laodicea, many Christians in local churches today know not that they are wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. This demand for righteous sadness exposes the remaining facade among human sown fig leaves and man-made religion. And then thirdly, David, the Old Testament man <laughs> with experiences of all kinds of mourning. I mean, David uh, uh, can be used as an illustration of proper mourning of poor in spirit kind. He can be uh, uh, an illustration of, of uh, uh, proper mourning of the human loss. My wife lost a, a friend, lost a, 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 a child uh, thing. He can be used as an illustration for proper mourning like that. And he can be used as, as an example of illegitimate mourning where that in the emotion of loss, he does a sinful thing. David had all kinds of experiences in mourning, both legit and illegitimate, but came, as we know at the last, to the greatest of discovery and expressed it in these words, saying, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Or as David's greater son said it, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's God's way. That's the only way it works, and it works unto lasting comfort, the very comfort of God. Now, with those things in mind, I want to take your minds in one more direction this morning as we begin to try to land our thoughts concerning this profound statement of our Lord Jesus concerning our attitude in relationship to sin before God. The Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 61-2 speaks of divine vengeance upon sin and the comfort to be found in Messiah for those that mourn. Isaiah 61-2, I'm not going to read it. Some of you turn to it. Great, look at it. 61-2 is where you find a direct connection between the reality of God's divine vengeance upon sin and the comfort to be found in Messiah for those that mourn. Now, previous to Isaiah 61 is Isaiah 40. Duh. And in Isaiah 40, God's prophet had announced comfort coming for the sinful people to be judged and exiled by God for their sin, 
And in Isaiah 40, Isaiah specifies that hope of comfort in the terms of a voice crying in the wilderness. We've identified that voice as Matthew does, John. And Isaiah specifies the hope that takes mourning and makes it comfortable or makes it a comfort. Uh, uh, We have Isaiah expressing that hope, not only as a voice crying in the wilderness, John, but as the glory of the Lord seen. And you and I have been led by Matthew to speak of Jesus. And so you have in the Old Testament prophecy, not only do you have the anticipation of God's action to take mourning, the right kind of mourning, and to turn it into comfort, but you also have in God's prophetic uh, indication a clear representation of the very way to characterize the ministry of John the baptizer, a voice crying in the wilderness, and the right way to characterize the Lord Jesus, the glory of the Lord revealed. Now, it's interesting that the Old Testament word comfort, Isaiah 40, is in my mind, but most of the Old Testament reference to comfort, uh, 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 that particular Hebrew word means to be sorry and consoled. It means both to be sorry and consoled. The New Testament word, Matthew 5, 4, for comfort, as used by the Lord Jesus, means to be called to one's side. Now listen to this. The word comfort means to be called to one's side. The mourner is the one. The mourner is the only one called to the side of Messiah. Messiah is the ultimate comforter. The prophetic line brings together time and again the truth of God's vengeance over sin and the comfort to be given to those that mourn. This pattern goes all the way back to Genesis and the judgment of God by a worldwide flood. Noah, the name Noah, means rest or comfort. And he and his wife, their three sons and their wives, were the only ones comforted of God in the ark of safety in the midst of divine judgment. Noah foreshadows the greater comfort to come. The familiar account of Noah includes the divine gathering of animals. Noah did not buy a jeep, get a long pole with a lancet, and run around at 45 mile an hour putting it over the head of a gazelle, trying to get those crazy animals into the ark. No. All Noah did was build it according to God's instructions and watched as God divinely gathered animals. In the same way that God divinely gathered animals into the ark of safety. God is gathering a people for his namesake. 
God is gathering a people into the ark of safety, which is Christ. And you and I are laborers together with God. Or not at all. The prophetic witness to Messiah includes the divine gathering of people. In the statement of King Jesus to the Jewish nation 5.4, we see the word mourn because of the truth of God's vengeance upon sin. And we see the word comfort because Jesus the Messiah is God of comfort. The Father is said to be the God of comfort. Christ is projected to be the God of comfort. When Jesus was in the upper room of his disciples, he said and spoke of them of another comforter, the word another being another of the same kind, a God comforter, in reference to the Holy Spirit. We usually use the word comforter for the Spirit, and I wouldn't argue against that, but I'm simply saying that based upon what Jesus said in the upper room, based upon what Paul said of God the Father, we can say, as the comfort, Father, as the comfort, the Son, as the comfort, the Holy Spirit. And the reason that Jesus could speak of another comforter of the same kind is because he is the ultimate, capital C, comforter that has come to comfort us with saving comforter, comfort in relationship to the cross. In the cross of Christ, we see both the vengeance of God upon sin and the saving comfort accomplished in Christ. The gospel we preach, the gospel of the cross, brings together the worst day ever with the best day ever and gives it to us as a gift. The gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, after the kingdom offer, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and beyond for a few chapters, uh, after this kingdom offer is rejected by first century Jewish people, Jesus will go on to speak of the vengeance of God to be poured out on the earth in a great tribulation. And once again, he will bring the issue to bear that those that mourn shall be comforted. In fact, Scripture says that all Israel in that coming day shall be saved. All Israel in that coming day shall be comforted. But for us today, we can say with absolute confidence, with an open Bible, that the mighty conqueror of sin and death, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose on the third day, is indeed the mighty comforter 
that saves the mourning soul. What a beautiful application to the gospel we preach. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Father, thank you this morning for such a blessed word concerning Christ. And help us that love you, knowing that you first loved us. Help us that love you to express this morning our praise and thanksgiving for the gift received in Christ. And help us further, who know you and love you, to take full advantage today and any of the days that remain in this world before thy son's return to be days in which we come again and again to the foot of the cross, confessing our sins, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May these people in this congregation know thy comforts today. And may anyone among us who is yet a sinner, by definition and declaration, may they come to know the saving comfort of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.